Thank you very much, John, for that warm welcome. Uh, thank you, Discovery, for that warm welcome. Uh, I will just say from the get-go that you guys have the coolest, the hippest pastor in all of Roner Park. And uh, there's, there's uh, a thing that transpired uh, since COVID uh, in which the pastors of Roner Park have kind of gotten together, gotten to know one another, um, and your pastor, John, was a big spearhead in that and coordinating that. Um, and so I'm very grateful to John, to you guys at Discovery. Um, so I'm very excited to be here this morning. Uh, just a, a little bit, just personally, uh, I am married. Uh, I have four kids, uh, two of them. My two daughters are married off and out of the house, and I have two sons left, a senior in high school, a sophomore in high school. Um, we pastor uh, Calvary Chapel, Roanoke Park. Uh, <laughs> I, I also coach JV boys basketball at Rancho Cotati High School. Um, and as he mentioned, uh, we started uh, the Sozo Student Center um, and Squatch's Ice Cream Sandwich and Coffee Shop. So uh, I know a lot of you guys have visited. I know uh, we've even brought some ice cream sandwiches here. Um, and so we appreciate all that Discovery does uh, for the community and for us at Sozo. Uh, this morning, if you have your Bibles and you want to or your phones, you can open uh, to Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians that uh, are kind of feeling displaced. Um, they are in a culture and a society that is foreign to them. Uh, it's the Roman Empire. Everything that Rome does, they hate. Um, and they've become Christians. And so now even their, their Jewish family and friends, they've rejected them. And so the Hebrews have found themselves in a place of just being ostracized and rejected by the community and the culture. And so he writes this letter. And at the end of this letter, uh, he writes these words in verse 1 and verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 12. He says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us. Lord, that we would have open ears and open hearts. Lord, that we would leave here changed. Lord, that we would leave here inspired uh, to be your hands and feet in this community. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a Saturday morning, and, and John, not your pastor John, but another John, uh, he got up to go uh, deer hunting. It was the first day of the season, and he was excited to get out and bag himself a deer. And he gets ready, and he heads downstairs, and as he gets downstairs, there at, his, at the table is his wife, Mary. And his wife is sitting there, and, and he asks her, what are you doing up so early? Like, this is really early. Why are you up? And she said, well, you know, I wanted to spend more time with you, and so I thought we could go hunting together. I, I want to go hunting with you. Well, the, 
the husband was a little taken aback, but, you know, appreciated the thought and the effort, and so he decides to take his wife along hunting. And so they get, you know, they pull up to the parking spot, and they trek into the woods to uh, his, his deer blind, and he climbs up, and he, and he sets his wife there, and he says, okay, here's what you do. Here's the gun. Um, when you see the deer, you point the gun at the deer, and you shoot the gun. You shoot the deer. And she's like, okay, great. And so he, he leaves the deer blind, and he starts heading away, and he's just thinking to himself, there's no way my wife is going to bag a deer. Well, not 10 minutes later, he hears, blam, blam. And he's like, what? She, like, she, like, and so he starts to turn around, and he starts heading back to his wife. And, um, and as he draws closer, he's, he, he hears shouting. And arguing back and forth. And so this is kind of a concern to him. So he kind of picks up the pace and he starts jogging. And then all of a sudden as he gets closer, the yelling gets louder. And then he hears another volley of gunfire. Blam, blam. And this is really concerning. So he walks into the clearing. And there he sees this man, this cowboy, with his hands up. And his wife has the gun pointed at him. And he says, okay, okay, lady, you can have the deer. Just let me get the saddle off of it. Now, I will tell you I'm a big proponent of husband and wife, you know, finding hobbies that they can do together. Uh, when my wife and I uh, first started dating, um, she, she really enjoyed running, um, and I did not. Uh, I grew up a, as a high school athlete, so I did run a lot, uh, playing baseball and basketball and football. I, I did run a lot, but I did not like running for no purpose. Uh, there's no such thing as a fun run to me. Um, it, <laughs> so, but, my, but, but my girlfriend, my wife, who was the girl, my girlfriend at the time, she loved running. And so we, it was an early part of our engagement, and we decided to, to take a run together. And as we started to run, I began to realize that I wasn't as in shape as I used to be in high school. Not only that, but I hate running anyway, so there was no motivation, except I found motivation that day because I did not want to stop running until she did. Yeah. I, there was a little bit of a competitive side to me, and so I was just like, there's no way I am stopping first. And I will have you know, I kept my manhood intact that day, but I couldn't have this continue. And so, being the godly man I was, I took my wife to the Bible to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, that says, The wicked run when no one chases them. <laughs> so from that day forward, we played tennis. Well, the writer of Hebrews likens the Christian life to running a race. And in that race, the writer of Hebrews Hebrews acknowledges that there are going to be hardships, that there are going to be obstacles. And so he tells the Hebrews to run with endurance. And look again at the end of verse 1. It says to run the race that is set before us with endurance. Each one of us has a race. Your race is different than my race, and my race is different than your race. But the writer of Hebrews says there's going to be hardships and there's going to be difficulties. 
And he describes this Christian walk, he describes this race as an endurance race. Uh, really the equivalent of a marathon. And they say that there are eight stages of a marathon. I say they because, well, we already covered that. <laughs> the eight stages of the marathon, the first one is the excitement, the beginning, the buildup. The gunshot goes off. There's this energy as people start running. But then shortly after, the excitement becomes the denial. Like, I can't really be feeling this way so early on in the race. No, I'm, I'm going to press on. I'm only a little bit behind. I'm not going to stop for water yet. I'm going to push myself. And oh, look, there's, a, there's, a, there's our first hill. Oh, goody. There's this denial. But after denial, then, then shock begins to take place. As you realize, I'm only halfway through. How am I going to make it? And oh, look, another hill? Is this course full of hills? But then after shock becomes isolation. As the runner begins to look around and realize there's no one else around them. The paces have all been different. And so they begin to just run and wonder to themselves, did I get off course? Am I the only one running? And the only thing that you're left with is yourself and your demons and the things that are running on in your head. After isolation comes despair. I'm going to die. There's no way I can make it. I'm so tired, even my teeth are tired. Like there's just a point of exhaustion. But then... After despair comes the wall, where you feel like you cannot take one more step. And then, after those six stages, comes the second wind, where there's this decision that, no, I'm going to power through, time to dig deep, time to grind it out. I'm going to do this. And then the eighth stage. The eighth stage is elation because you finished the race. You did it. Now think of your walk with God. And I can imagine that through your walk with the Lord, your spiritual walk, that you've hit these different stages. Maybe in the beginning it was excitement. And then as you started to walk with the Lord, you began to realize the, the different components that make walking with the Lord difficult. And then you just go into denial. And then after denial, you're in shock. And, you know, you just kind of go through it. And then you realize, no, I'm going to make a conscious decision to push through. And I'm going to keep going. And then you've experienced that elation that comes with it. Now, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the Christian life is like an endurance race, like a marathon. But he tells us there to lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us. And the word that's used there for ensnare, it's, it's, it's a fascinating word. It means to envelop and enclose. But there's an added piece to it in the Greek. It, it, it's more like this. I don't know if you had siblings growing up or if you have kids and they've done this, but where like someone takes a big blanket and then they tackle them and they put the blanket over their head and they like suffocate them, Right? That's the word here. So what sin does is it's like lurking. 
It's waiting for us. And when we walk by, it, it jumps on us, it encloses us, it envelops us, and it suffocates us. And the writer of Hebrews says, lay aside those sins which so easily ensnare us. But he also says this, lay aside every weight. And there's a distinction between the weight and the sin. Weight is something that just isn't helpful in propelling you forward in your walk with God. I think about Olympic swimmers. If you see the body of an Olympic swimmer, there is no hair. They have shaved every part of their body. They have waxed every part of their body. They don't want any bit of hair. And they either have a shaved head or they have a cap that they put on over their hair. And the reason why they do it is because even the slightest amount of drag that hair would cause could be the difference of winning and losing, could be the difference of an Olympic gold medal and an Olympic silver medal. And so they get rid of every weight everything they get rid of. So the writer tells us to lay aside the weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and he says to run with endurance. The Greek word there is hupomone, and it means to put yourself under suffering. It means that there's a conscious decision that you are going to stay under suffering. And if you talk to anyone that runs long distances you know that at some point they have to do that. They have to teach their body to run long distances. And so he says, run the race with endurance. Those three things, very simple. When you want to run this race, you lay aside every weight that, and sin that so easily ensnares you, and you, you run with endurance, and you look unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. Hurdle runners, when they are taught how to run hurdles, they are taught not to look at the hurdles as they run. They are taught to look at the finish line. Because if you're running and you are looking at the hurdles, your body it has this God-given ability that your body follows where you're looking. And so if you're looking at your hurdles, if you're looking at your obstacles, you're going to trip up. And so the writer of Hebrews says, look at Jesus. Don't look at your circumstances. Look at Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Three simple instructions. It's pretty simple. Fortunately, God has given us the Holy Spirit and his word to encourage us. His Holy Spirit is kind of like a, a spiritual GPS. You know, it's like you've made the wrong turn, make you turn here. You know, you've got the exit coming up in a 1,000 feet. I mean, the Bible and the Holy Spirit, he's given us that to encourage us in this race. But there's something else that's here in Hebrews chapter 12 that encourages us. Look again at the first part of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. See, in Hebrews 11, we are told of the Old Testament saints, like Abraham, like Jacob, who you guys talked about last week. Men and women who lived lives 
that inspired, that cheered on these group of Hebrew Christians that were going through difficulty and hardships and obstacles. The writer of Hebrews says, look back at their lives, look back at what they left behind, look back at their legacy, and be inspired to run this race with endurance. The MMA and UFC champion, Vitor Belfort, said this, Legacy is not what I did for myself. It's what I'm doing for the next generation. And we live in a time and a place where legacy is often talked about in social media, um, in, in, in professional sports, and they speak of legacy, but the, the legacy that they speak of is completely self-centered. The legacy that they want is a legacy of themselves. They want to be exalted. They want to be worshipped. They want to be glorified. But true legacy is not that. True legacy is something that you leave for the next generation. It's not an exaltation of self. A legacy of how great a person is can be of a little inspiration. When we think of the greats, like Michael Jordan, I'm sorry, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an athlete, I coach sports, that's how I think. If you think of Michael Jordan, is Michael Jordan an inspiration? Yes, a little bit, a little bit. Our greater inspirations are those grandparents and parents and coaches and teachers. They're of greater inspiration. Our pastors. I'm going to share a few names with you. Dennis Gerais, Dave Verdue, Mark Reichling, Bob Pollan, Eric Hoppus, Mitchell Yellen. Now, for most, you guys have no idea what those names mean and who they are. But to a young boy who grew up in a fatherless home, they meant the world. I can honestly say, without them, I would not be here today. My earliest childhood memories of my father leaving at the age of three. He left. Uh, my mother remarried. My stepdad was physically and emotionally abusive. And at the age of eight years old, after three years of watching my, my stepdad physically punch and hit my mom, we left. And so, again, being fatherless, not having a father in the home, Dennis Gerais, my Uncle Dennis, came into my life. And what he did is he introduced me to baseball and he introduced me to football. Besides my family, through my great loves, oh, and Jesus. Uh, <laughs> two great loves. And he was there. He wasn't there for long. Uh, that eight-year-old boy then turned into 10, 11, 12-year-old boy, starting to go to junior high, liked baseball, liked football, but also began to like basketball. And this tall, lanky, uncoordinated, unathletic boy moved in next to Dave Verdue. My dad's 5'10". 
My dad is the most unathletic person I've ever met. I inherited that, it would seem. And so I went to Dave, and I said, Dave, I want to I wanna learn how to play basketball. And Dave Verdue taught me how to play baseball, taught me how to throw a curve, taught me how to post up, taught me how to shoot the basketball, use the backboard. Dave Verdue left a legacy in that moment. Well, that was a very short time. Dave moved to Colorado. I got into high school. Um, I started dating a girl, and at the age of 16, I became a dad. Um, and as you can imagine, being a 16-year-old, uh, going to school full-time, uh, playing basketball and football, um, trying to take care of a baby was very difficult. And one day, I didn't go into school. I was having a very difficult day, overwhelmed by the circumstances. And I had made a decision. I needed to quit basketball. It was basketball season. I needed to quit. I had already quit football. And so I'm walking through the halls. It's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon after school, walking through the halls. My English teacher, Mark Reichling, says, hey, what are you doing here? And I just... 16-year-old kid, overwhelmed, just kind of broke down and just kind of laid it all out. Said, I got to go to work. I'm behind in my bills. And that day, Mark Reichling loaned me $400, my English teacher. And from that point on, he would always check in with me. After I left that room, though, I continued to walk to my varsity basketball coach's class, Bob Paulin. And I walked in and I told him, like, I can't. I can't keep doing this. I, I got to quit basketball. And he told me, he said, Sean, you come to games when you can. You come to practices when you can. No questions asked. This is varsity basketball. If you don't understand the importance and the meaning of it, then let me explain it. You don't miss practices and you don't miss games on varsity sports. There's a high level of commitment. And Bob Paulin said, you take care of what you need to, but you keep on the team. The following year, I had a new varsity coach, Eric Hoppus. In order for me to go to practice, his daughters watched my daughter. Mitchell Yellen, seeing this kid totally messed up, totally just lost, took, took me under his wings paid for me to go to a Christian camp where I got saved, where I came back. He gave me a job. He gave me a car. And it was the, you just, I look back and I see Dennis and Dave and Bob and Eric and Mark and Mitchell. And they have no idea the legacy that they left behind. The legacy that they left behind is in the walls at Sozo. In fact, they're a major reason why my wife and I started Sozo. The impact that they had on a young kid is the, is the same impact that we want to have. And there are major reasons uh, why we opened up Sozo. Um, because there are kids that come from broken homes. They come from dysfunctional homes. 
Uh, they, they also come from good homes. But the world and, and the influences of this world have kind of caused a little bit of destruction. A new study that was done by the San Diego State University psychology professor found that there are five times as many high school and college students that are dealing with mental health and depression and anxiety than there were back in the Depression. So during the time that we call the Great Depression, there are five times as many teenagers and college students that are dealing with anxiety and depression. In the 1990s and in the early 2000s, there was a decline in depression. There was a decline in suicides. But in 2007, something happened. Something changed. Apple released its first iPhone. And since then, over the last decade and a half, the number of American children and teenagers admitted to children's hospitals for reporting suicidal thoughts has more than doubled. So I grew up in the 90s. We didn't have social media. We just had the regular media. And we had just the old peer pressure, you know, the pressures of friends talking about you and the, you know, trying to keep up your reputation and, you know, making sure the music you listen to in your disc man uh, is the right music. Uh, for those who are younger, Google it. It's in some kind of archaic uh, history museum. Um, but just the thought of having the influence of social media and the, the standards that are laid out there. Our kids, this next generation, are going through uh, battles and anxiety and depression, even if they come from a good home and a godly home. The influences are there. You come out and hang out at Sozo and you will hear the stories. The world tells them that they have this hole, but there's something to fill it. And so they look to being successful. They look to drugs and alcohol. They look to vaping. They look to being an influencer on social media. They look to being uh, in the NBA or the NFL. They look to being an actor, an actress. They look to sex. And that's the world's answer to what they need to keep their eyes on as they're running this life of faith. So the purpose of Sozo is to encourage them to look to Jesus yeah. as they run their race. Yeah. And that's what Dennis and Dave and Mark and Bob and Eric and Mitchell did for me. And so today, their legacy is in the walls of Sozo. But their legacy is also in the lives that they transformed each day at Sozo. But not just them. See, you guys, discovery is just as much a part of that. Um, we were so honored last year when you guys uh, gave to Sozo as your, as your year-end legacy gift. And I know many of you guys have traveled and gone into Squatches. And the ice cream sandwiches you buy and the coffee you buy, I know that's a, a treat for you, but it also pours in. It's the legacy that you're leaving behind in these kids' lives. Over this last year, 
we started praying regularly for God to bring help. Um, my wife and I, at times, we would work 80 hours a week. So we needed help, and so we began to pray for help. And this over this last year, we've had four college-age students say, you know, we'll come work for free. Just find a place for us to live. We'll get a part-time job, and we'll come and work for free. Over this last year, uh, we held our second annual Sonoma County Baccalaureate service, uh, trying to kind of restart that tradition where uh, it's, a, it's basically a graduation. It's a worship service for graduating seniors. Uh, we provided support to the group of students that wanted to start a Christian club on campus, and we provide pizza for them every week. Uh, this last year, at back to school night at LJ and Rancho Cotati High School, uh, Sozo was invited to have a booth um, to educate the parents on what we do there at Sozo, uh, even though we are a faith-based organization. We had a group of Rancho teachers use our back room to hold a prayer meeting, a faculty prayer meeting during the strike last year. Uh, we are now involved in coaching uh, three sports. Uh, we're, well, let me rephrase that. We're involved in three sports programs uh, as far as coaching over at Rancho. We continue to have 30 to 40 kids showing up, um, and these are unchurched kids at 180 on Thursday. Uh, I think Sarah mentioned every first Thursday night, but, but Sozo has it every Thursday night, and there are 30 to 40 unchurched kids that show up every week. And we have provided them over 400 Costco pizzas this last year. <laughs> that is a lot of good something. Um, on a weekly basis, we have 300 kids, 300 individual kids that come in the doors at Sozo. Of those 300, 50 of them have made decisions to follow Christ. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. And that's the legacy that's being left behind. That's the legacy that's being left behind by Discovery, by those guys that I mentioned earlier. By those who have given to Sozo and visited Squatches. But here's the reality. We've each been given a, a race to run. And we can't run it alone. We need a cloud of witnesses. We need a cloud of people that are along cheering us. And that's what Sozo is to the next generation. I'm going to finish up with this. The Boston Marathon is one of the most famous marathons, if not the most famous marathon in the world. As part of the course in the Boston Marathon, about 20 miles in, there's, there's a landmark called Heartbreak Hill. And it's, it's where most people would give up. And it's not the steepness of the hill. In fact, it's one of the, the, the lower grades. However, it's where it takes place. It takes place at the 20-mile mark when people are just done. And there was this reporter, this journalist, who would cover the Boston Marathon for years at the starting line. Well, one year he decided to go up to Heartbreak Hill. Because there at Heartbreak Hill, there's a crowd that just gathers around. And they're not friends and family. They're just there to cheer on the runners. Because that's the point where they, they give up. And so as they're running and getting to the peak, the journalist yells out, Heartbreak is behind you. And this woman stops, 
And she turns, and with tears streaming down her face, she comes up to this journalist, this stranger, and gives him a hug. The power of someone just saying, we're for you. You can do this. And now every year he holds up a sign that says, heartbreaks behind you. And people have kissed it, and they've selfied with it. And it is incredibly popular because of the phenomenon that we've all faced. We're ready to give up. And there's a crowd of witnesses saying, keep going. There's a legacy that's left behind. And that is what takes place at Sozo. So, it's because of people like you that a legacy has been left.